You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Simply Safe. You can save 20% on your Simply Safe security system and get your first month free when you sign up for interactive monitoring service. Just visit simplysafe.com slash mission log to customize your system and start protecting your home and family. That's S I M P L I S A F E dot com slash mission log. This episode is also brought to you by BetterHelp. Live a happier life today. As a listener, get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, betterhelp.com slash mission log. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H E L P dot com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 423, The Emperor's New Cloak. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we follow Star Trek episode by episode, wherever it may go, whatever universe it may occupy, and we search all around for morals, meanings, and messages. This week, the Emperor's New Cloak, the one where morals are in short supply and ethics get stabbed, literally and figuratively. John will be here with your trivia in a moment, right after I tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Wait, 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 give, give, me, give me the mic. Give, give me the mic. And now, and now, here is John Champion with your trivia. Oh, thank you for that lovely introduction, Grand Nagus Zek. Today's episode, The Emperor's New Cloak, was written by Ira Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. Yes, this was a story that Ira and Hans pushed along as a last stop in the Mirror Universe before they really buckled down and focused on the wrap-up of DS9's larger story arcs. Rene Echeverria had a big hand in this story's development as well. It was directed by LeVar Burton, and here we are at the end of LeVar's directorial contributions to DS9, And it's appropriate that he be here for this one, since the previous episode he directed was also in the Mirror Universe. That one was Resurrection. You may notice that at the top of the show, there is a uh, a title card that says, In Memory of Jerome Bixby. He was one of the great creative science fiction authors who cut his teeth in sci-fi film and TV in the 50s and 60s. He worked on the sci-fi drama Men Into Space in 1960, and he contributed the story of It's a Good Life on the Twilight Zone. He is credited with four episodes of TOS, the most relevant to today's discussion being Mirror Mirror. 
since Bixby had passed away in April of 1998 and DS9 saw this as a send-off to their mirror universe, it felt fitting to add the in memoriam at the beginning of the episode. And uh, we've talked before about John Eves being a huge design contributor to the Star Trek universe. As it often happens, uh, Terry Erdman's book, The Deep Space Nine Companion, has a drawing of the Klingon cloaking device that we see in the show. What is not pictured is that John also did a drawing of the cloaking device cloaked. Yes, he he handed that Ooh, in uh, that from the art like? department. I, well, you just have to use your imagination now, won't you? <laughs> now. Mm. Let's talk about guest stars. So our regular cast are pretty much all there as we expect them to be and playing alternate versions of themselves. We also have the return of Wallace Shawn as Grand Nagus Zek and Jeffrey Combs as the alternate version of Brunt. We also have alternate Lita and regular universe Mehardu, played as always by Tiny Ron. <laughs> Mirror, mirror on the wall, DS9's almost over, so this is the last call. Prologue. It's business as usual at Quark's Bar, if in fact business was Quark pining away for Esri Dax. Quark seems to be thoroughly bothered and disgusted with Dr. Bashir's flirtiness towards Esri, as the two are sharing a wonderful evening together across the bar and easily within staring distance from Quark. Unfortunately, Odo is in hearing distance next to Quark, and being Quark's confidant in his most current affairs of the heart, can only add his own unique form of emotionally detached observation, trying to remind his lovesick friend that perhaps Esri isn't into Quark as much as he'd like her to be. And to make matters more irritating, Rom bursts into the bar and bemoans to his brother that Grand Nagus, or Zeki, has gone missing for 12 days from a trip which he should have returned from in five. More importantly, at least to Quark, he lost track of Ezri and Bashir, as Odo emotionally jabs him one last time, saying the two left the bar holding hands. Afterwards, as Quark is winding down from his day with a few offerings of latinum to his blessed god, the ex-checker of Ferenginar, to help steer Ezri's affections away from the good doctor and back towards Quark, his prayers were interrupted by a sudden chiming at the door. Quark's prayers have been answered, well, sort of. As the doors opened, a very similar yet different Ezri Dax entered looking for Quark. Well, sort of. It turns out this is Ezri Tegan from the alternate universe, which explains the hardened, leather-clad, and to Quark's delight, more hands-on and aggressive than the Ezri he knows. Wasting no time as this is Ezri's way, she tells Quark that Grand Negazek is the prisoner of the Klingon-Cardassian alliance of her universe, and if Quark doesn't acquire a cloaking device to pay for the Grand Negus's ransom, Zek will surely die. Act 1. Leaving one of the airlocks, appearing to be hauling something extremely heavy in tow between the two of them, Quark and Rom seem to have acquired an actually cloaked cloaking device from General Martok's flagship, the IKS Rotaran. Good thing Rom is a skilled engineer. But it's so heavy that while trying to nonchalantly carry it through the station's narrow corridors, they put it down and try to catch their breath. 
Just then, Captain Sisko and General Martok stride by the Ferengi brothers, who catch the captain's eye as they seem to be in a bit of physical distress. Playing off their caper with a well-executed excuse of staring at the bulkhead colors to inspire Rom's newfound desire to repaint his quarters, an impatient General Martok coaxes Sisko back to their conversation, leaving the brothers to their... whatever it is they were doing. Thinking that they lost track of where they set down the cloaking device component, Quark reaches out towards the floor and yelps in pain by finding it. Well, technically, the electrocharged induction coil found his fingers first. Finally making their way back to Cargo Bay 14, Esri Teagan is waiting for them, anxious to get back to her reality through the use of that ever-so-handy-dandy interdimensional transporter device. However, true to his instincts for sussing out deals that can go from sour to worse... Quark wants a few assurances regarding Zek's safety before he hands over his ill-gotten goods, i.e., he wants to go with her and complete the transaction in person. And, just as Ezri protests Quark's conditions, a very, very irate General Martok bursts in onto the scene, forcing Ezri to take both of the brothers and the cloaking device with her as she activates her interdimensional device, transporting the whole kitten caboodle to the... mirror... um alternate universe. Upon materializing in a cargo bay, which to Rom looks exactly like the cargo bay they just left, well, without General Martok's ire bearing down on them, Quark does make mention that both he and Rom are dead in this universe. But explanations will have to wait as gunslinger Vic Fontaine comes bursting through the cargo bay entrance with twin phaser pistols blazing in each hand. To Quark and Rom's disbelief, he's no hologram, and perhaps would have been better off if he were, because Vic's assailants, led by the ruggedly roguish Bashir of the Terran Resistance, guns down Vic in the center of the cargo bay. Act 2. As Vic lays dead on the floor, Bashir, Julian Bashir, sets his sights on Ezri, Quark, and Rom, the latter who are still stunned at what just happened, and takes all of them into custody. Later, in a holding cell, the three prisoners deal with Bashir and Miles O'Brien, known as Smiley in this universe. It seems that by Smiley's admission that Ezri is a mercenary and holds no allegiance to either the Terran Rebellion or the Klingon-Cardassian Alliance. However, this guarantees little to no protection for Quark and Rom, who explain that they simply want to trade their contraband cloaking device for Grand Negusek's freedom. But there's a catch. O'Brien, or Smiley, knows that this cloaking device... A technology that doesn't exist in this alternate universe can turn the tide in the Rebellion's favor and can't afford to lose this opportunity to use it against the Alliance. The way Smiley sees it, either Quark and Rom can go back from whence they came without Zek in tow, or take their chances negotiating Zek's freedom without the cloaking device. Ezri strongly suggests that they leave. At least those odds are in their favor, but what kind of Ferengi isn't one to bet against the odds? As the Ferengi believe, the greater the risk, the greater the profit and saving Zek can only lead to a fountain of profit. Meanwhile, on the Alliance's massive Negvar-class flagship, it appears that Intendant Kira has her situation well in hand. Well, more like Zek's lobes in hand, as her persuasive umaks have maneuvered Zek into devising the scheme which has caused Quark and Rom's current predicament. It was Zek who promised Kira that they would deliver the cloaking device to the Alliance for his freedom, to be sure but the Umoks are a very persuasive fringe benefit. Back in the brig on Terok Nor, Quark does finally admit to Ezri that even though Zek is his Nagus and is flowing in Latinum, 
and his Moogie's betrothed, all of these circumstances aside, Quark is here to bring Zek home out of simple loyalty, a concept Ezri finds difficult to reconcile. Just then, Brunt appears, but not the Brunt Quark and Rom knows. He's different, as Rom has so consistently pointed out about everything in this universe. Brunt breaks them out of their holding cell and escorts them to his ship and to safety. Act 3. Aboard Brunt's escape vessel, it appears that this alternate universe's Brunt is not only an accomplished engineer, but quite the chef as well, as Rom devours serving after serving of Brunt's fried tube grubs. Or maybe that's exactly what this Brunt wants him to do. Or perhaps they're poisoned, which makes Brunt just like his real counterpart. But no more tube grubs? No. Yes! After stuffing Rom to the point of exhaustion and suggesting to Ezri that she should rest, Brunt and Quark find themselves alone on the shuttle's bridge and can't help but probe each other for information. Brunt is extremely loyal to Ezri, for reasons that Quark understands. But Brunt also has no love for the Alliance, so at least there is some common ground between these two Ferengi. Oh, one last word of advice from Brunt about Ezri. She's very particular about men and what she considers her type. Meanwhile, on the Alliance flagship, Regent Worf is pleased to have discovered this most wonderful sinus-clearing cure in Grand Negasek's stash of beetle snuff. Garrick, never too far from polishing his Regent's boot heels, continues pressing the Regent to eliminate his, uh, two-year-old problem in the form of the now-incarcerated Intendant Kira. However, with a clear mind and clear sinuses, Worf has plans for this cloaking device and still needs Kira to play her part in securing it. Finally, after all of the delays and machinations, Quark and Rom, along with Ezri and Brunt, dock with the Negvar and come face-to-face with Regent Worf. With the cloaking device aboard Worf's flagship, Quark stands ready to seal the deal and trade it for Zek's freedom. There's just one catch. You're in the alternate universe. And naturally... Kira appears from behind the shadows, and of course, she's been manipulating this entire affair all along, sealed in full with a kiss upon Ezri, her most loyal of friends. However, not all is completely lost, at least much to Garrick's dismay, Worf doesn't execute the brothers and has them thrown in yet another brig instead. Act 4. Even though they're all locked up in the Negvar's brig, Quark, Rom, and Grand Negasek, and yes, my Hardu as well, There's no better place to unravel and summarize a convoluted plot narrative than inside a jail cell. So, it turns out that when Rom was last on Ferenginar visiting Mugi, he left his official Starfleet engineering pad out on the kitchen table, and as Zet got up for a little midnight snacking, he made off with Rom's pad and all of the sensitive information on it, including schematics for the interdimensional transporter that the chief asked him to study. Long story short... Zek managed to manufacture one and set his lobes on securing new financial opportunities in this alternate universe. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Later in their guest quarters, Brunt tries to convince Ezri that what they've done to Quark and Rom was wrong, and that they need to keep their part of the bargain. Brunt, being a man of his word, pushes this point a step too far, as Kira, as she has always wont to do, manages to appear just as the conversation requires, and... Also, as she is wont to do, dispatches her would-be betrayer by plunging a knife into Brunt, killing him as Ezri screams in disbelief. And even as Kira impresses upon Ezri how much she values loyalty, 
Esri could care less and tells Kira to clean up her own mess. On the bridge of the Negvar, a Klingon helmsman informs Regent Worf that they have detected the Defiant in pursuit. However, the cloaking device is still not operational, as it requires more engineering finesse than Garrick is capable of. So Esri goes to fetch Rom, who she knows has the skills to fix it. As she frees Rom from the brig, she does make assurances to Quark that she really is trying to help him. Rom, Zek, all of them. Time and patience are of the essence, as an irate Rom, leaning into more of his mirror counterpart's attitude, barks at Garrick, who is inefficiently helping Rom install the cloaking device. Meanwhile, back on the bridge, Kira, with Regent Worf wrapped around her sensibilities, has plans for Tarak Nor, if she can find a way to get back to her station. With the cloaking device finally installed and activated, it's time for Worf to engage the Defiant, and it's also time for Garrick to escort Rom back to the brig so that he can join the rest of his family for a little execution party that Garrick has planned for them, courtesy of Regent Worf, and replete with a deadly and excruciatingly painful blood-boiling, and organ-bursting virus. So who's first? Act 5. Reveling in his moment as both jailer and executioner, and monologuing about the Olcartic virus he's about to inject into his prisoners, Garrick's enthusiasm is quickly cut short as Quark, Rom, and Grand Negasek band together and ruin this alternate universe's Garrick's moment by comparing him to their Garrick, who is a real spy, a prolific interrogator, and a true master of savoring his work confusing poor Mira Garrick because he's not sure if they're referring to his counterpart as a master assassin or a plain and simple tailor. On the Defiance Bridge, Smiley and Bashir are concerned that Worf's far more armored and armed warship hasn't dealt with them by now. Perhaps the cloaking device isn't the advantage that the Regent hoped it would be, and sure enough, that is proven to be the case, as Worf, with the Defiant in his sights, orders the cloak to be dropped to catch the Defiant unawares, which causes a cascade of failures and then a complete power grid failure in the next bar. But how? In one word, sabotage. The defunct power grid also allows Quark and Rom to nearly get the upper hand on Garrick, who shrugs off his would-be assailants, only to once again monologue before pumping Rom full of the virus, giving Ezri the window to surprise Garrick from behind, redirecting the hypospray into Garrick's neck, which, by his own previous description, dispatches him both quickly and painfully. Making their escape towards the airlock, Ezri and company run into a fleeing intendant Kira. With weapons trained on each other, Ezri and Kira, out of a moment of mutual understanding, allow each other to leave and go their separate ways. Ezri wants no part of what Kira's future plans hold, nor does she want Quark, Rom, and Zek in her universe one moment longer as well. With a Negvar completely at their mercy, Captain O'Brien and Bashir dictate terms to Regent Worf, who accepts them and offers his and the Alliance's unconditional surrender. Upon finally returning to Tarek Nor, the triumphant rebels are met by Leda, who even in this universe is as stunning as ever, much to the delight of the newly reformed Ezri, who has chosen to be debriefed by the Terran's seductive and persuasive leader. All's well that ends well. The Alliance has been defeated, Zek has been freed, and there's only one thing left for Quark and Rom to do. Activate the interdimensional device and go home. The end. All right, Norman, nicely done. A lot of plot going on in the alternate universe. Alternate or mirror, I think we're just going to alternate those uh, with abandon on today's episode, you know? 
alternating the yes, alternate universe. Yes, exactly. Yes, well done. And, and there will be a lot of comments, a lot of uh, serious and not so serious things to look into this week. But I got to bring this up right away because even offline, we were just talking about um, oh some of the the tensions involved here, some of the interest and budding or not so budding relationships. How do we feel about Quark's obsession with Dax? Is it is it creepy? Is it him just being him? Will anyone tell him to knock it off at a certain point? Because here's the thing, you know, in this episode and, you know, go back to something that we mentioned in It's Only a Paper Moon. You've got Vic just sort of checking out Esri. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't say anything inappropriate. You just realize like, oh, he also sees that she's attractive, <laughs> you know? But mm-hmm. here you've got a guy like Quark who is unloading on anybody who will listen to him about what he thinks of Dax. Uh, sorry, Esri. We, we, we kind of we could use those uh, interchangeably as well here, uh, even though we know her real family name now. But I just, I, I wonder, like, is it just, it's a combination of pathetic but creepy but come on, dude, you don't have a shot. Just stop. Just knock it off. And somebody really needs to tell you to knock it off. I think that Quark in this situation is pretty much representing like every uh, what kind of like stocky-ish character that's in a John Hughes mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, uh, you could be like Ducky, you know, in Pretty in Pink, you know, or like, you know, looking at uh, if if Esri was Molly Ringwald and uh not Molly Ringwald. I'm crossing all they, the. They all the blend together movies, but at a certain point. Yeah, yeah they all yeah. blend together. But you had, you have, you know, uh, good-looking boy mm-hmm. A with good-looking girl B, completely being kind of like uh, jealously stared at by uh, outsider person yeah. C. Yeah. Right. That's kind of like the dynamic here. But you know, long story short, yes, he is being creepy. Uh, he's. I think he's trying to force himself into an opportunity. That he may see since this is a brand new Dax, it's Ezri, but he, he you know, his his feelings were towards Jadzia, right. not Ezri. Right. And, and that this is where it just is. And look, I, I realize this is kind of heavy topic to get into here, where we normally just do our light exchange about fun things. But I had to point it out because it's not really the point of the episode. But man, oh man. And, and all that said, like, look, characters can have attractions to other characters. That's fine at a certain point though you got to drop it you got to move on and by the way if uh, Bashir is certainly a less creepy Bashir than we've had and say since the beginning of DS9 if he is reconnecting with Dax in this new Dax Esri Dax um, maybe that's fine maybe we just see where that goes mm-hmm. yeah I think he's just I think Quark is just projecting his own insecurities I mean, if we're going to like psychoanalyze yeah, like the yeah. entire situation, but, which we dude, d- just do. don't be a creep. Get it together. Like, if you ask her out, she says no. Yeah. You're done. Move on. Yeah, move on. Yeah, mm-hmm. no ulterior yeah. motive there. Uh, I-, I love how Morn is framed in the background, mm-hmm. like when Quark and Odo are talking to each other, and especially the, uh-huh. the shot uh, of of Quark's, you know, um, behind his shoulder. Morn's yeah. talking, but you can't see his <laughs> mouth. You can't see his face. It's being blocked, yes. like literally, like literally and figuratively, perfectly by the extra who is talking yes. to more. Yeah, that that's awesome. 
Yeah. So smart. Perfectly it's so done. smart. I, I will mention that uh, since we were talking a little bit about the uh, uh, relationships of Ferengi there, uh, Ferengi infidelity is just sort of accepted by Quark. I, I mean, you know, poor innocent Rom. I feel bad for you, but Quark's just like, yeah, this is what happens. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. All right. But we have to talk about this. Oh, my God. The prayer scene to the idol of the blessed exchequer is so excellent and so very Ferengi. You can tell that Ira mm -hmm. and Hans, etc., just have great love writing the details of the Ferengi culture. Um, you have to pay, which I love, even in your own little idol there, which uh, isn't that far off from some religions anyway, fine. And, uh, and that Quark is basically asking for his own wealth and the dismissal of his opponents, like Dr. Bashir, also yeah. perfect. Perfection wouldn't change a thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, plugging in a strip of Latinum or two into the ears of the exchequer, no different than offering up yeah. Franken gold whatever, frankincense man. and myrrh, yeah. right? Uh, 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 ties, whatever. That's, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. But I really want the exchequer, man. I want that prop because he looks like a giant, like, Ferengi so piggy good. bank. <laughs> it's right? awesome. Like, and where does that money go? I mean, it just goes into the head. So I guess if Quark is like strapped for cash, you can always just crack. I, I wonder that open, too, maybe? because it's his personal idol. So yeah. uh, unless there's some, you know, to, to the Ferengi, ooh, does a guy like Brunt come by and collect that at some point? Maybe there's like a ooh. temple to the Grand Exchequer, which of course the Grand Nagus would have access to. I'm making up this whole whole head cannon here. Yeah, whatever happens, like if Brunt comes in. I'm sure he's going to like exact some type of tax. Well, there's a fee for you know, doing that. <laughs> on the yeah, offering. There's a fee for collecting yeah. the offering, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing that did kind of like bother me a little bit, uh, it, miming is a very specific mm -hmm. skill uh, in acting. You know, you're either really good at it or you're yeah. not. And in this case, I don't think, I love Armin and I love Max to death. And I've, I've, you know, I've laid bare my emotions about them mm -hmm. as actors on previous episodes, but they just didn't do the miming thing well with the cloaked cloaking device. Yeah, so th there's an interesting behind-the-scenes bit of trivia about that where they rehearse that a lot, but it's still, like you said, it's something you have as a skill or you don't. And they even tried something where they had some dowels and some monofilament so they, they could kind of mm -hmm. keep the dowels spread apart, keep the monofilament taut, and that would sort of show them exactly the distance that they needed to be apart from each other. But it still, it was just very imperfect, and that's where Rene had the idea of what will sort of phase in a little bit of the object. So that'll actually help hide some of those imperfect movements. I think it would be done very differently today where you you oh, sure. actually have a physical prop between them, and then you CG that in or out, um, because it would be right. way cheaper to do that now, you know? Uh, but yeah, but yeah. I, interesting idea, but there was a lot of it for it to not be quite as effective. I think that this episode really boils down to one thing. Somebody wanted to write a line of dialogue where Quark said, I can't believe it, Julian just shot Vic Fontaine. <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just, yeah. it seems like this has been like the thrust of this episode. Yeah. Some just, some play on yeah. fan fiction. Yeah, well, I, that sounded like fan fiction. And, and honestly, so did Vulcan Love Slave Volume 3. That sounded like fan fiction. Maybe some fan fiction I want to read, you know? 
Yeah. Mm. I, I, all right. So now we were talking about uh, the differences in the mirror universe and and who's into who. Just want to point out that Esri, Mirror Esri, has that sort of combo of like Joan Jett and Ursa from Superman 2 vibe. And I love it. I am here <laughs> nice. for it 100%. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, uh, the lovely yes. Sarah Douglas. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And, oh, by the way, okay, even Grand Nagas Zach on the video, he says, I'm in the alternate universe. Note, he says, the, not an. So it's just one. Right. <laughs> just uh, of all the possibilities of the multiverse, there's just the one. And, and he's in it. Maybe the spec that he stole from Rom only has like the frequency for that universe. Who Ooh, knows? could be. Right? Could be. Yeah. 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 You know, instead of like, you know, this one goes to 11. So I'll just dial it all the way <laughs> right. up to 11. Right. There yeah. you are in the alternate yeah. universe. Uh, speaking of the alternate universe, Vic is a hologram in the not alternate yeah. universe and a real person in the alternate universe. First of all, why? Second of all, is this Felix? Ooh. Okay. I have a thought on that. I'll, I'll share in the next segment. Oh, and also somebody, you know, I know, I know that the alternate universe is kind of like the, 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 the opposite of what we usually know of our characters, but someone please throw Dr. Bashir into a freaking sonic shower <laughs> sometime because i know that it's the opposite but come on it's like does the guy like never shower or like wash his right. hair seriously yeah good point good or point. shave I, or anything I totally agree yeah. with that and by the way speaking of who's who and and who's where mira jadzia is dead too i mean so therefore they have their own esri i come on how how mirror exactly is this place this is one of the the many things that you know doesn't make sense i think that this is a little bit of a parody mm -hmm. and i think rightfully so saying it's because every single time rom says something is like debating whether or not what is alternate and what is not alternate like you know he's going through these lines of logic that absolutely can't make yeah, any sense of course like, yeah especially with like brunt and the tube rubs if brunt was this way he wouldn't have done this but if he did this that he should have done right. this so are we in an alternate universe or what are the rules and i think a lot of us are kind of like with rom like yeah what are the rules yeah. here yeah or i, I will hand that to him that that is a clever thing to do in this episode is have rom sort of in the place of the audience uh, presenting that there, there is some fun dialogue in this episode. You know, uh, I'll point out a few as we go along, but uh, a very soothing shade of gray. I did like just the uh, in the opening bit. Uh, the, they're they're sort of throwing off Cisco, thinking they're throwing off Cisco by looking at the color of gray on the walls. You know, it's the same as what you already have. And I do like the Negus saying, "I'm your Negus. You have no secrets from me." <laughs> I mean, that's just it's fun. <laughs> it's totally appropriate. I dig that. You know, one of my favorite scenes, it's just so funny, and it kind of is a little on that uh, tongue-in-cheek barbarism that's in the Mirror mm -hmm. Universe, when, when Worf, like, he tries on a new studded <laughs> glove, and he tells like someone to say, hey, you, come over here, and knocks him out, and he yes. goes, mm, nice fit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, that's pretty funny, right? Yeah. That's pretty funny. Uh, so Rom's pad, the one that Grand Negasek found and stole the schematics from. So this is a Starfleet-issued pad for a Starfleet-issued engineer and has no biometric print security or even a password. No two-factor authentication See, and all. the problem, there are two ways to look at that. You can look at it as, yeah, as you're pointing out, there's no authentication, no password, no nothing. And Rom is kind of dumb and maybe a little too trusting but he's also a brilliant engineer. So it seems mm -hmm. like these are the kind of things that he would 
know how to do and would do regularly because it would just be protocol yep. at that point. Yeah. True. But even if it was like dumb, you know, or just absent minded, you would think that when the pad goes to sleep, I know I'm projecting like modern technology onto 24th technology. Sure. Why would I do that? <laughs> yeah. But you would think it would have some type of like security mechanism yeah. on yeah. it. So, okay, I have been pointing out some dialogue that I like that I didn't like now. I'm going to say that there's one bit where Rom, since we're talking about Rom, says, I'm really beginning to hate this universe. I do not like dialogue like this. It is far more clever when he's just doing the thing, this doesn't make sense. He's actually thinking about it, trying to wrap his head around it. But when he is threatened with death and then says, I'm really beginning to hate this universe, it's sort of like a cheap line from a comic book. It doesn't really fit in the reality. Granted, this is an alternate reality, but the reality of the show. Uh, lines like that break right. my suspension of disbelief. What I do like, though, is dialogue like Garrick describing his virus because he so savors that moment describing what it does to you and makes your organs boil and uh, it's just so great. And that whole scene of the Ferengi trying to outsmart him, brilliant, I, best scene yes. in the whole show. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. super smart and, and super mm-hmm. funny at the yep. same time. Yep. Here's kind of like the big meta point. So when Worf surrenders at the end, is this the actual end of the Empire? You know, is this the end of, like, the the alternate universe's power struggle? Because he's it, right? The Regent and the Negvar super warship and the Klingon-Cardassian alliance. He surrenders in total. Is that it? You know what? I was thinking the same thing, that that this maybe this is the happy, uh, in quotes, happy ending of the mirror universe here. Because, look, if Ira and Hans were doing what they said they were going to do and putting an end on the mirror universe by this episode, well, that was the way to do it. And, um, gosh, I wonder if anybody else will come along and do mirror universe stories after they have put an end to it. Who has spent more time in the Agonizer booth here? Mira Garrick? Nervik? Maybe John and Norman? We'll get right back to the Emperor's new book in a moment, but first a word from this week's sponsor. So, John, did you know that there's big news from our favorite home security company? Big news? Big news from our favorite security company? The what biggest news. The biggest oh, news. Okay. From Simply Safe. So Simply Safe just launched their new wireless outdoor security camera. That's right. Simply Safe, the system that US News and World Report names best home security system of 2021, just got even better. This brand new outdoor security camera is engineered with all the advanced tech and security features you want and need to help keep you and your family safe. Okay, look, I'm kind of a, a home kit geek. I'm kind of a home automation and connected devices geek. And I'm also a camera geek. So this speaks to me on a lot of levels. So speaking of that security camera, we're talking about an ultra-wide 140-degree field of view so you can keep watch over your entire yard. 1080p resolution with an 8x zoom. That means you can zoom in on every detail and clearly see things like, oh, I don't know, faces and license plates to capture critical evidence. 
it has a built-in spotlight with color night vision, so you can keep an eye on what's going on day and night. It is super simple to set up and usually takes just minutes. And it has an easy-to-remove rechargeable battery, so it doesn't need an outlet and can go anywhere on your property. This camera has it all. And it integrates with your Simply Safe home security system, extending its protection to the outside. Together, that means that every door, window, and room are protected, and now your property will be too. So, to learn more about this exciting new Simply Safe wireless outdoor security camera, visit simplysafe.com/missionlog. What's more, Simply Safe is celebrating this new camera by offering twenty percent off your entire new system and your first month of monitoring service free when you enroll in interactive monitoring. Again, that's simplysafe.com slash mission log. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? What is it that interferes with your happiness? Check out betterhelp.com slash mission log. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You get to connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. And you can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is available also for clients worldwide. Find the particular expertise you need online and don't limit yourself to the counselors located near you. Norman, you and I have talked about the value and importance of therapy, and BetterHelp is such a great way to find that in the easiest way possible. It can apply to so many specialized areas of concern with counselors who specialize in everything from depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem. Remember that anything you share is completely confidential. And this service is convenient, it is professional, it is affordable, and you can check out the testimonials that are posted daily on their site. And remember, BetterHelp is not a crisis line, but so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We here at Mission Log want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor, betterhelp.com slash mission log. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mission log. All right, Norman, we're back. I, I honestly, the longer we have gone through DS9 and we've seen multiple sojourns into the mirror universe, seeing as how we got none in next gen, I'm kind of surprised that we ended up there again this late in the seventh season. But here we are. So I ask you, how do you want to tackle it? Well, I think that we have to like ask the, the big meta question, like step outside of the content of this episode and kind of mm. ask, 
and maybe what a lot of the audience are are you know probably on board with us asking. And I want to come at a completely different angle than okay. what we're than what we usually do in discussion because in discussion we kind of like find the in-story discussion points to talk about, but I'm really puzzled as to why another Mirror Universe episode and why did it have to be produced at this time as we're actually marching towards like the last 14 episodes of the entire series, wrapping up Deep Space Nine. So yeah. that's one question. But the other thing is, and I'll be honest, sometimes when I was watching this episode, I even felt like the actors weren't even all that interested in the script. <laughs> with, okay, maybe, well, with maybe the exception of Nicole, because her Esri is new to playing in the alternate universe, but everything else just felt kind of rote. You know, it, it's so funny, and, and this is a bit that I actually saved in my uh, wrap-up notes for the next segment, but I'll share it with you now. So, again, Terry's book, Deep Space Nine Companion, fantastic. He calls out specifically that Nicole loved doing this episode because here she is, the new person, and gets this meaty role where it's something totally opposite of her character, which she has very clearly crafted and honed quite well from the beginning. But here she gets to do something very different. And yes, that is fun for an actor to be able to do that that time that you step out. One of the people who absolutely hated it was Andy Robinson. He just felt like Garrick in the real world and the prime universe is so much more interesting than just the mustache twirling bad guy. So he was glad to see Garrick in the mirror universe get killed. Yeah, and and there you go, and and it's interesting that your first note is about that you know the production reality because this is usually the stuff that we save for the next segment, but it kind of has to be addressed here to figure out why we're doing this, and that honestly was my first note too, because something that I appreciate about this is that internally we're talking about the production reality of Deep Space Nine of Star Trek as a whole. They are acknowledging that the mirror universe makes no sense. They're acknowledging by letting uh, Rom be the stand-in for the audience, like, okay, I'm trying to do this in my head. I'm trying to figure out why one person is good, one person's bad. Opposite is the opposite, therefore it's the opposite. It, it doesn't make sense. But here's the thing. If that is indeed the case, that it makes no sense, why are we going there again? Because if it's just for the point of saying that it doesn't make sense, we could do that quite easily elsewhere. And I just I, – I find it – I find it a little hard to swallow that the writers were maybe strapped for an idea here or they just felt like, well – using actors and their alternate versions of themselves, that that's fun, that there wasn't another way to do that. So if the purpose wasn't, well, we're trying to fill time, or the purpose wasn't the actors just want to have fun doing something, then what was the purpose? Because I don't want to jump too far ahead in our wrap-up here, but I'm not seeing a lot of there there. When you write a story, that story presumably is because you have a story to tell and you, you need to tell that story and that story has a point about a character or a certain plot or whatever it is that's driving the narrative of that. And this just felt like, well, we're going there because we can. We're going there because we haven't told that story about these particular characters being front and center. So we will. But we've already been there. We've already done it. 
I guess the big question is, or, or the big point to be made is, 25 years ago when they wrote this episode, we didn't exist. This dynamic didn't exist. Social media mm-hmm. didn't exist. Analyzing episodes as they were released didn't exist. So we're looking at this from the standpoint of, uh, you know, looking at it from, you know, 20,000 feet up, looking down and mm-hmm. saying or questioning the reasons why. Uh, maybe at the time they're just like, you know, what? this could be a fun episode. We'll put it out there. People will like it or they won't. You know, we'll hear a little bit of rumbling maybe like from the trade magazines, but that's about it. I guess the big question is, though, and I'll say that it's like a flippant question, but it's, it's serious at the same time. So when actors sign their contracts to come onto Deep Space Nine, is there like a hidden clause guaranteeing them like an episode in the alternate universe? You know, because it all, it seems like that's the only reason why this episode ever would have been made so that aren't, there aren't any like contract violations for yeah, like Nicole. Because yeah. that's the, I mean, I don't just get right. why this happened. Well, see, and then that's the part that becomes very indulgent. If it's just the writer saying, well, we just want to do stuff there because it's cool and different and we can write crazy dialogue and crazy scenes. Or if it's for the actors, well, we just want the actors to be able to do something crazy and fun and different from the regular characters. Both of those situations are very indulgent. They're not putting the narrative first. And that's what's difficult to swallow about this. By the way, I apologize to our audience that we're we're using this chunk of the show that is usually about our deep thoughts, uh, deep dive discussion to really kind of pick this apart. But we're picking it apart at this production level because I feel like in a lot of ways that's all we're left with. I'm going to bring up two points, one not so serious, one kind of serious, though. So that not so serious point is what you alluded to in the last segment. Vic. All right. So there is, to me, there is one and only one really interesting thing about seeing a real, a human Vic Fontaine running around in the mirror universe. The idea that there is or was a real Vic Fontaine in the prime universe who served as a model for that hologram. Maybe it's Felix. Maybe it's uh, somebody that Felix knew or idolized or or whatever uses that model. That you can kind of let your imagination run away with you there and try to determine. Wow! So at least somebody in the Prime Universe is like him, and I actually appreciate it when it's more subtle like that. When I don't see somebody on the other end, when I, when I don't have the mirror universe just cramming an exact direct parallel down my throat, and it's let me infer, like, well, what if that person doesn't exist? Well, what if they do exist somewhere? That's the more interesting aspect of the parallel universe, not just saying, boom, here's a mirror copy of everything. But honestly, that's it. Done. That is to me, the only interesting thing about seeing Vic Fontaine in the mirror universe. All right, now I'll bring up the thing that I think actually is a serious point, and uh, I'll be curious to get your take on it and uh, and our listeners as well, and why specifically our listeners, because I feel like this is a topic that we could hand over our podcast to someone else completely to do a discussion on sexuality in the mirror universe. Uh, But but we'll, we'll hit a few points here, uh, and then as we do, like I said, we, just, we leave this conversation up to you, our listeners. I have to talk about that kiss mm-hmm. and, and why this is a problem 
even with probably good intentions around it. So let's go back to 1999. Not that many gay or bi characters on mainstream TV or film. And if there are, they're usually the bad guy and there's some association or inference about their sexuality being related to their problems or their evilness. So here comes a show like Star Trek, which rightfully so has this history of dealing with issues and being socially progressive and pushing the envelope. And so far, we've only gotten same-sex sexuality when there's been some complicating factor. It was Beverly Crusher in The Host when her trill lover exchanged bodies. Jadzia Dax in Rejoined, where you, you kind of have an out there because, well, they, they were married and they were a heterosexual couple and they're not going to end up together later. So we, we have the moment and then we move on from it. And here we have a scene that to me feels like it's the writers slash producers just waving their hands at the cameras and saying, look how edgy we are by playing with the sexuality of these characters. But it just has no meaning because it's all this inconsequential mirror universe. Mm -hmm. And and if we do saddle it with any meaning, it's just that the evil versions of our characters have a much more fluid sexuality, which uh, honestly is actually great if they weren't evil. <laughs> so um, I, I'm uh, having a very difficult time given that they decided to go this direction with this episode or with these characters in this episode, giving it any import beyond just look at what we can do, but guess what? They're in the mirror universe, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm going to call out that scene because that really was just – it was just shock value for shock value's sake. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the, the episode that you specified here, you know, Jadzia, uh, you know, and her relationship, you know, with their trill hosts mm -hmm. uh, who fell in love again and rejoined, that was so heavily marketed as like the first same sex kiss for Star Trek mm -hmm. in the 1990s. And it was a big deal just in terms of the media push. But when I saw it on this episode, even though it was brief, it was just this whole, let's add this in there because it's shocking to see. Like, yeah. shocking titillating or shocking because we can. And I think that's, that's the wrong way to use something like that, to use that kind of sexuality. They built up a very, you know, important level of, uh, I guess, sexual empowerment and freedom in the intendant, in Kira. Mm -hmm. And it just comes off as being, oh, well, that's just shock value. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I guess watching it today... We don't probably see it as, uh, you know, as impactful. It's just more like, yeah, sure, it, it's Star Trek. Why wouldn't we see something like that? But in the 1990s, you know, it's, wow, look at that. You know, two very attractive women sharing that kind of an intimate moment, even though it wasn't that intimate. It was mm -hmm. just, let me be crass for one second. Please no emails. But it's just like, it's a bro moment. It's like, look, dude, mm -hmm. two hot chicks kissing on Star Trek. Yeah, let's check that out mm -hmm. and, and timestamp mm -hmm. that. That's not what it was about. I don't think that what it was intended to be, but it comes off as being that way. Yeah. And I, I think that it was an unfortunate uh, use of that kind of sexuality. Um, yeah. I do actually have one more like non-production related point, and it actually has to do with Kira. And okay. I didn't really... I didn't really put it together at first, but I, you know, our due diligence in watching these shows and multiple mm -hmm. times, even this one, something struck me funny this time around. 
uh, maybe like a third or second or third watching. <laughs> Intending Kira is just as bent on taking Terok Nor as Guldakat is taking Ooh. Deep Space Nine. And, and, and the way that Nana plays Intendant Kira is eerily similar to the way that Gul Dukat is earlier on in Deep Space Nine. And, and here's the kicker. Both of them have this delusional godlike desire for all of their children to love them yes. unconditionally. Yes. So I was seeing that, yeah, Kira, Intendant Kira is channeling a lot of who Gul Dukat is in this alternate universe. Am I wrong? All of this talk about Mirror Vic Fontaine makes me wonder, whatever happened to Mirror LQ Sonny Clemens? Well, John, you know, as we always do at the end of our Mission Log recap, we take a look at the final segment here with does this episode hold up and does it withstand the test of time? And then we will get on to the morals and meanings and messages. One question, though, before you start. Yeah. If you were an alternate version of you, John, in the alternate universe, would you be clean-shaven, and would you hate food and wine? Oh, oh, man. I, oh, boy, that's tough. I, I kind of, I don't want to meet that alternate version. If that alternate version hates food and wine, I can tell you right away that we would not get along. Probably a tougher question than the morals and meanings and messages that you've come up with at the end of this. Truly, maybe. Truly, I'm just is. assuming that, but yeah. that's 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 the uh, the alternate universe version of me. I just make a lot of assumptions and not do my homework. So, very good. So let's look at this episode as a production, and uh, we, we've had maybe two in a row that are a little tough to swallow. So will, will this one? Will, will this episode make up for all the bad things that I said about Prodigal Daughter? No, that that episode was still a huge misstep. And then I think they follow it up here with another huge misstep. In fact, this one feels like rubbing salt into the wound. I, I want to see my shows rebound if they make a misstep and then they come back and they go, oh, no, no, but th- this is what we're all about. But when you go from a show like It's Only a Paper Moon that is so incredibly good, so thoughtful, and then you do Prodigal Daughter. And then you do this. You just have to wonder, what are they thinking? And I can't imagine how audiences must have felt in 1999 after dedicating years to watching the show. And then they get these oddball turns just right in a row. I will say this. You know, Rom is relatable by realizing that none of it makes sense. So that was a clever trick of the writing in here. But even then, I feel like that's kind of a cop-out. It is acceptable when, say, in the second Austin Powers movie, you have Basil Exposition say something about time travel not making any sense, because that is a a wink and a nod to the audience. This isn't really a show or a series in particular that does a lot of winking and nodding to the audience. So I'm still a bit torn on using that as, as a crutch here. It's hard to do comedy on Star Trek. It's very hard to do comedy on Star Trek. But I think they've had a very good run of it on DS9 because the characters are so good. Mostly when they've tried to lighten the mood on DS9, it's by allowing the characters to lead and not by contriving a situation. And that's the problem we have here. When you get a natural laugh 
out of something that happened because the characters are so real and you're so invested in them, that's great. But when you contrive a whole situation, it, it feels like bad sitcom writing. The Mirror Universe is costumes in search of a story. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, but just by putting more of it in a show, it doesn't make those plots any more interesting or those characters any more worthy of being followed and having my emotional investment. I very quickly lose my interest and my connection to them. And once I've figured out who's different and how, that's about it. You, you've done it. You've played the game. You've played the home game. I know that they're having fun, but at that point, it's just self-indulgent uh, because I'm not having fun. <laughs> except for Brunt. Except for Brunt. He's the only one I care about, and I cared about his death, and I, I deeply cared about how Jeffrey Combs played him. And I love Nana Visitor. And I love what she's done with Kira over the years of this show. I feel like a glimpse of the intendant is fun, but anything more than a glimpse is a problem. However, I think what you just said about at the end of our last segment about seeing the parallel between how the intendant is like Gul Dukat in the Prime Universe, I think that's actually the most interesting character thing to take out of any of this. I, I feel like the way that the intendant is played, it's sort of like our problem with statistical probabilities. Uh, Lauren in that, it's like her her genetic superpower is just that she's sexy. And there wasn't a whole lot beyond that. And I feel like with the intendant, it's like, well, her character trait is that she's sexy. Okay, but then what? Well, I feel like you did a very effective job of reading between the lines here and actually seeing the motivation. And the motivation is inspired by Gul Dukat. And whether they put that down on paper at the time or it was something that Nana just followed, thinking like, hmm, who would actually be my opposite? Well, it's not opposite Kira. It's the thing Kira hates. And it's mm. the thing that is under Kira's skin. Mm -hmm. That is a much more interesting interpretation of anything going on in DS9's alternate universe than what we actually <laughs> have, have been forced to follow here as character and story. And I did mention that uh, Andy hated playing Mira Garrick, so he was glad to see him die. So <laughs> I understand. I feel you, Andy. I get you on that. Norman, before we find any morals meetings messages here, what about the episode holding up for you, does it, my friend? Well, I want to put this in a way that you know that uh, it's it's delicate, you know, to all of our. No, <laughs> no, absolutely not. This episode did not hold up for me at all. <laughs> I almost and, spit water on my mic. Yeah, <laughs> I was waiting for that moment. Know, That's right? why I was kind of vamping a little bit. Okay, uh, yeah. and I'm sorry for all of you who are listening out there. I know this is, uh, you know, tell not show, yeah. but no, this episode didn't hold up for me in in any stretch of what we do here at the end of our episode. Mm -hmm. And I really do wish I didn't have to watch it more than once, but because I take what I do here incredibly seriously on Mission Log, I wanted to make sure that what I was going to say, the, the words that I'm going to say that follow this, were accurate and at least uh, thought through and analyzed. So for me, this episode really felt like a glorified fan fiction project. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps in many ways, the mere universe or the alternate universe, however you want to label it, those episodes kind of are, or at least in the last few that we've seen in Deep Space Nine. Let's go all the way back to Resurrection. Mira Burial 
was really a stretch mm-hmm. at best. And yeah. maybe that was the place to leave the mirror universe behind. At least the justification was somewhat interesting, and the machinations between Mirabarile and Kira were somewhat relatable. But this episode was just, at best, fan pandering. Mm-hmm. And at worst, well, I won't really go there. I don't think that's just, it's not where I want to go. <laughs> sure. But it's just a filler episode overall. Actually, no, I will go there. What I really want to say is that it just, it makes you just question why, and at worst, you're just ambivalent about it. And that's yeah. not what a Star Trek episode should be. Yeah. Yeah. Just, oh, oh, sure. You know, yeah, it was out there. It's done. One mm-hmm. and done. You know, we're out. Especially at this moment in Deep Space Nine's acceleration towards the end. So maybe just treating it like, yeah, a ho-hum filler episode is probably the most severe critique that I can hold against it because that's all it really was. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, I really just didn't care. Like, either way, like, one side or the other, uh, and ambivalence is probably, like, the worst thing that I can say about any episode. Well, maybe except for James Darren as Vic, because, Mm. yeah, it was cool to see this, you know, like, Vic Fontaine, this cool cat, cool tuxedo, Mm -hmm. you know, lounge lizard singer, that kind of look. All of a sudden, like, in this universe, he is a gun-toting, guns-blazing, hard-boiled kind of character. Why? Who cares? He just looked cool. That's not good enough. It's like empty calories, right? Sure, in whatever form they are, they're delicious. Right. But ultimately, they're just bad for you. And they make you feel guilty because somewhere along the way, you got to purge them from your system. Yeah. That's why there's really nothing redeeming about this episode. Did Nicole look sexy? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And you could say that about the intendant. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could say that about Nana. You could say that about Lita. Obviously, they made that a point at the end. But any mirror universe character would maybe the exception of Bashir looks sexy. Uh, I mean, hey, maybe Bashir is looking that's sexy just my in the mirror universe for, that's for just some my taste. taste. Yeah, that's just I, my taste. I bet yeah. Worf, I bet mirror Worf is looking sexier than regular Worf to, uh, to some people. Yeah, I thought so. Mm-hmm. But think about it this yeah. way. If someone shows up out of nowhere in like dark leather clothes and a different hairstyle and maybe a oversect and smoldering swagger about them, guess what? They're from the mirror universe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But telegraphing that just makes you accept that this is just a popcorn show. Right. That's not a bad thing as long as you know that your popcorn's also been drenched with extra butter, too. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So, look, and that brings us to what we do here the whole point of Mission Log, which is what did we learn? What are the morals, meanings, messages? What is the statement of the show? And what does that mean to us? And I have to lead by asking, come on now. I mean, <laughs> look, uh, it, no, who learned anything? Even Zek. Zek gets saved from certain death and at the end of the episode just wants to go back to make money, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I, I get it, that that's very Ferengi, uh, sure, but we already knew that about Ferengi. And maybe, maybe if I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe there's a little Star Wars in here too, that no matter how bad someone is, there's a little good in them somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you find the right one, maybe. Yeah. But we usually don't find those here, or it's the ones we kind of expect. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that it would be funny to see, like, maybe on the shooting script or maybe in the concept that uh, someone made a note, like, what if Esri was like Han Solo? 
right? Because she's kind of uh, like in that Han Solo-ish archetype, like the mercenary, mercenary with a heart yeah. of gold. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, uh, at the very end, you know, because Brunt, maybe Brunt was her Chewbacca and Chewbacca died in this alternate universe and mm. Esri, like, she really needs to question her morality. She could be talking to, like, you know, say, Quark. And Quark would be like, you know, you really got to, you know, you got to help us out here. And she says, attacking the Negvar isn't my idea of courage. It's more like suicide, <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. But that's where she's coming from kind of like at the end where she, you know, she, she kills Garrick. She frees her friends, quote unquote, because she's feeling guilty about what Brunt was making her feel guilty about. And that's not owning, uh, owning up to the code of honor of mercenaries. Yeah. And that's where Han Solo was. So I'm giving the morals, meanings, and messages way more credit than I actually wrote. <laughs> I just, I'm just talking about this because Han Solo inspires me in that way. But honestly, there are no real morals or meanings or messages in this episode. But one message is super clear. And maybe I should ask the audience here if you're familiar with this phrase, going to the well too many times. Mm. Mm-hmm. What does this phrase mean? Well, depending on you know your interpretation of it, going to the well or drawing from the same resource too many times to the point of depleting or diminishing it, i.e. the mirror universe, that's the message. Sometimes it's not always about the message in universe. Sometimes it's the message that's just plain to see outside of the series per se from the production standpoint. And we talked about this in our discussion where we don't usually talk about production in discussion. But yeah, why go there? Why do it? And did you go to the well too many times? Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Field of Fire. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. Other characters I wonder about. The Mirror Klingon Chef, Mirror Bilby, Mirror Morn. Mirror Beverly's Grandma's Mirror Sexy Candle Ghost, Mirror George and Gracie. And Transmission. This is a Roddenberry Podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.